Our scripture reading today is the book of 2 John. You can find it on the Blue Bible in front of you on page 1025 if you want to follow along. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Hopefully so. Um, working on the microphone. Well, my name is Philip Maxwell. Uh, thank you, Nick, for reading our scripture this morning. Uh, I get to serve as the, your youth pastor uh, for the last four years, which is a joy. And even um, on, a, on a day or weekend, which brings a lot of heaviness, uh, it is a joy to be with you opening God's word because here we find hope for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Today, as you heard read, uh, we open to the second letter of John uh, to a church in Asia Minor. And this short book at the back of your New Testament, one that I often pass over right on my way to Revelation or something else, because um, I'm always in the Bible, right? That's what pastors do. Uh, most believe it was written by the Apostle John, the same one who wrote the Gospel of John sometime around the year 90 AD. And John's point in writing this letter is consistent. It's the same as his ministry. It's very him, in other words. And his point, the only way to be the people of God, to be people following Jesus together, as he says in verse 7, is to claim that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. The only way to be the people of God together is to claim together that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And there's something that's a little bit different about John's way of showing you Jesus than the other gospel writers and biblical authors, okay? John believes it's especially important that you see not only Jesus' external body, but that you see what's going on inside him as well. John Calvin puts it this way, and since they, 
uh, since they all, meaning the four Gospels, had the same object to show Christ, the first three exhibit his body, if I may be permitted to put it like that. But John shows his soul. John shows his soul. Now that's striking, but not just because it's true, which it is, but the, the fourth gospel really stands out because it shows how Jesus felt to show you his insides, you could say. But it's striking because John's gospel from the very beginning places an abiding emphasis on Jesus' body and never leaves it. it stays there. In other words, he, John, leaves out many things that the first three gospels think are important to show only what's going on inside the Lord. How he thought, how he felt, how he hurt, how he aspired, how he loved. I don't know how you're feeling, but four days after Christmas Day, I'm feeling a little bit overstuffed, mostly with cookies. Uh, that's me. Like, I wish that my belly would just quit shaking like a bowl full of jelly. Okay, that's where I am right here after Christmas Day. But friends, hear this. John's gospel and John's goal in his gospel as well as his letters, is to show why it's so meaningful that God the Son has come in the flesh and took on a body like ours, no matter how we're feeling in this moment. And all of this stems from what we as Christians call the doctrine of the incarnation. This same John, the one who writes our letter today, puts it succinctly, puts it really briefly in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, where he writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And listen to me, I want you to, to understand something about how people would have heard this. This was scandalous to the people who first read it. To those who would have first read his letter as well as his gospel, this would have been a scandal. Because John picks up on an old idea common to many ancient myths and creation stories, Roman, Greek, and otherwise. That the gods himself, themselves covered themselves in human bodies and descended to earth and appeared as people, as humans. And that's it. They only appeared to be human. Unique from all previous stories, though, and previous legends, John explodes this idea with one little word became. Became. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Not only appeared to be, not only looked to be, he became flesh. This is what John wants us to see in our passage today in his letter. Look with me if you have it in front of you there at verse 7 again, where he says, Jesus Christ in the flesh. It's actually right in the middle of his letter. That's intentional. Well, what is so scandalous about it? Why does he give that statement such a place of importance? Why does he put it at the middle? Well, here's the question for us. We should be asking, why? If John's so concerned with confronting those who would deceive by, by denying that Jesus has come in the flesh, why would someone, a deceiver, someone masquerading as a follower of Jesus, why would a deceiver go out into the world denying that Jesus has come in the flesh in the first place? Here's why. Because what we'll see this morning, Jesus come in the flesh is the most monumental claim that the Bible can possibly make. And it's also what is at the very heart of Christianity. It's God's command that, that's there from the beginning, as John says. And also that he says it, it's, it's not here new, but old made new in the incarnation. It is God's love become flesh. That's why John is so, his language is so harsh against those who would deny the incarnation. He's not afraid to shy away from scandal. He's not afraid to get in trouble, in good trouble, right? He's not, he doesn't resist pointing out in the clearest terms how the incarnation of Christ is like no earthly philosophy or wisdom or story. What does he say? 
Look back at his letter. He does speak harshly. The, the person who does not confess Christ come in the flesh is the Antichrist. Another sermon for another day, right? Look down the page. Later he even says that to separate Jesus Christ from his flesh is to take part in wicked works. It's literally anti-Christ. It is against Christ. Whereas God was once spirit, only spirit, as it were, now and forever it's wicked, John says, to even suggest that. It's anti-Christ. He's saying that Jesus has so joined himself to our humanity, our fleshiness, that I want you to throw anybody out who denies that Jesus has done that. Can you pause for a moment and just recognize just how absurd that is? Just how great a claim that really is. I think I don't even have to tell you. You know, because you know it. You know it. There's nothing perfect about being human for us. In fact, there's something profoundly broken about it. I'll share with you a little uh, story that's quite common in our house. If you've been in our home, uh, you probably have seen, because it's, it appears in many places in our home, uh, small little decorations uh, put there by a certain three-year-old whom we love dearly, uh, our daughter Eloise. And at times, in, in various times and places, she will find a felt-tip marker. That's her favorite. Crayon also works. And she will disappear for a few minutes. And um, you know what, what's happening in those minutes, right? It's oddly quiet. You start to get suspicious. Something's very wrong. And then we'll find her moments later, whether it's on the nightstand. These are just a few places. Uh, on a door, on the, the rug in the dining room, um, on the glass. I don't, can you get crayon on glass? She can, apparently. We'll find somewhere a little piece of artwork, beautiful artwork from a three-year-old put in the absolute wrong place. <laughs> I think she even knows that it's a little bit wrong because she usually has a smile on her face when we find her. Right, she's giggling. I don't know why she does that. Maybe it's just to rile us up because she knows exactly how much it gets us worked up to find, you know, crayon in the middle of the living room uh, rug. But I think another reason that Eloise loves to do this and the reason she does it in this way is because it's kind of important that she's alone when she's committing this kind of act. <laughs> right? That's true for us too. It's just an example of how for us being alone is almost required to succumb to our worst flaws. The parts of us we wish weren't there, the parts of us we wish we could control a little bit better. Have you ever thought about how it's nearly none of your personal flaws, your habits of sin, are committed when you're with the people who know you best? Right? When you're spending time with people who actually love you dearly, it's most often, rather, that we're alone or feeling alone, maybe literally alone, when we fall the worst into sin. Because there's something about the separation of people that we experience, of us one from another, that has roots, a taproot even, in the event of creation. It's there from the beginning. Think back to the creation story at the beginning of the Bible, from Second John all the way back to the beginning, in the first pages in Genesis, was when God is creating the world and everything in it. You know what he says after he creates each kind of thing? There's a refrain there. It was good. It was good. God created this, and it was good. God created that, and it was good. Even very good when he creates mankind. But the really interesting thing is that it's only when he's created a single human. It's at that moment when we hear God first say, it is not good. It is not good. God says the human's aloneness as a singular creature whom he has made perfect is not good. So to complete creation, God makes a helper fit for him. Right? For the fullness of creation, God makes not one human being, 
alone, but two together. Um, my friend said, you know, John could have chosen any number of images to communicate the incarnation, but, but he chose flesh. Right? John chose this word. This is the word that scripture uses to speak of the incarnation so succinctly, so powerfully. Why? It's really because you cannot get more profane than flesh in the Bible. The way that the Bible speaks about flesh is almost always in terms of intense brokenness, of incompleteness, of what's wrong in the world is flesh. It always has to do with flesh. It comes from flesh. And as we all know, we experience the same kind of separation, the brokenness that comes from living as people in flesh, always in flesh. It exists between us and here. It exists between us and our family members, between us and others, even some we don't know. Sometimes members of the same family. Kind of like the scene we watched it recently in the Christmas movie, uh, Christmas Vacation, right, where Ellen, the mother, and her father, Grandpa, who's home for the holidays, they're walking out the front door to get in the car to do a little Christmas shopping. And Ellen suggests that they wait on her husband, Clark. And Grandpa says, wait on him? He's got another car. He can drive. I need to eat so I can take my back pill. He could drive himself. What's the big deal? What do I have to do with him? Let him fend for himself. Now, I may not be as old, but I think that I'm just as ornery as Grandpa here, okay? I don't think that I'm alone. We constantly want to escape the pain and the numbness and the annoyances of life. And often, other people, rather than being our companions in humanity, the fullness that God created them to be, that we need, merely become obstacles to our escape. But not just that, we invent, we're really good at inventing all sorts of ways to escape. To escape life in flesh. Life in flesh that Jesus chose willingly to take on. So shouldn't it surprise us then that Jesus saw all of that and actually chose to enter into it, to redeem it, to sanctify it. When the word, when Jesus became flesh, it means there is no longer anything secular. All is holy. That is the f- one part of what it means that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. God saw all that was wrong. He saw us complaining about each other. Right? He saw us distancing ourselves from each other so that we would protect ourselves, so that we could hopefully have the kind of life free of encumbrance of others, of annoyance. And he chose to enter into that existence, to flesh, to redeem it. All is holy. All the profaneness of existence in a body and flesh and blood is now holy. But not just that, the incarnation also means, it also means that all that it means to be flesh and blood is now holy too. Not just the flesh itself, but what it means to be enfleshed. And why is that so good for us? Why is that so good for us? Maybe stuffed on, on Christmas or whatever else we're stuffed on at the moment. Because the vast majority of our lives are spent aching for the things in our lives to actually matter. We, we really want to live lives that mean something. Where the best parts as well as the worst parts, they really matter. They're not just gone, but they have meaning. Even for our sadness to matter. For our frustration to be alleviated The experience, think about it, of of mowing the grass or weeding the garden. You're just going to do it next week, next season again. 
the time you spend chopping fresh vegetables for a meal or maybe heating a cup of ramen that's a little more my speed. Each is a holy moment. Every diaper that you change or item of clothing you actually hang up after you wear it, all are holy. But not only that, but because of the incarnation, every deal that falls through, every meeting or date that stands you up, every moment spent longing for a roommate or a better roommate, for a spouse, for children, or for a better job, or for children who just listen to you when you speak. Jesus dignifies each and every facet of our existence. That's what it means that he became flesh. Jesus wanted us to see the face of God. God that under the old covenant, or that Israel knew well, could not be looked upon directly. It was too much. Jesus wanted us to, to see God that way, to take us on a journey, on an adventure so great, so literally glorious that it would have killed us under the old covenant because of its raw power, because of its grandeur, because of God's holiness. Because to see God in all of his glory would have been, and it was too much for a person to see and to live. It's like seeing baby Yoda for the first time, you know? It's just too much for some of us. Jesus presents us with God become flesh. And this is big, because prior to this, without the incarnation, in other words, the very thought of seeing God seemed sacrilegious. But after it, John is writing, after the incarnation, now that Jesus has become flesh, nothing short of full overlap of divinity and humanity in Christ even gets close to who God is. In other words, Jesus now defines humanity and the human experience for us. He's tempted in every way, afflicted and bruised, but not broken, yet sinless, obedient, and holy, entirely attentive to the Father's presence at all times. It was paramount that, that God would have Jesus live the most ordinary existence of humanity in all of its profaneness. Right? In, in John's gospel, the word doesn't just settle for us. It's reflecting on this as we, as we heard John's gospel preached through Advent. The word doesn't just settle for us. It doesn't, under, under the demands of God, you know, sort of begrudgingly, get near to us. No, the word settles among us. Right? It became flesh and dwelt, found its home among us. In other words, apparently God not only loves us, he likes us as well. And I think if you're wondering what, okay, this is what the incarnation means, but what does this mean for me? What does this mean for my life? Yes, it's Christmas now, but it won't be right in a few weeks. And then we just have the ordinary life the rest of the year that we're all too familiar with. I think one easy way that we can pass over this, one easy way that we could not apply it would, for this to be, would, would be for this to be only momentary. For us to dwell on this and think that this is the message of Christmas, of Christ born in a major, and that it's behind us. No, it's quite the opposite. It is in front of us. It's before us all the time. All the time. Jesus, as another friend of mine likes to say, he didn't just commute from heaven. Okay, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel means God with us, not just for a moment, but God's design, his purpose is to finally be rejoined to him, 
to live with us forever. Forever. That is why John closes his letter saying there's so much more he could write, but he wants to see us face to face. God wants to see you, friends, face to face. That is part of what the incarnation means for us is that God doesn't just come near us. He becomes flesh. He becomes like us. It's easy for it just to be momentary, but you don't spend a single moment of your life not in flesh. Just as Jesus, after the incarnation, doesn't spend a moment not in flesh, even now, friends, he is in a physical body sitting at God's right hand. That is how committed Jesus is to the existence of flesh. Maybe to show you what, some of what this means and what this means for us to be people who are people of the incarnation who live this way. I want to share with you just in closing a story um, that I was reminded of from watching the, the show that came out this summer. But many of you, uh, I was one year shy, but lived through the disaster that was on the explosion at Chernobyl in 1986. And one story that comes out of this disaster is that of Ludmila Ignatenko. I'm going to do my best to represent these names well to you, okay? I don't speak Russian. Uh, but if you want to go learn more about her, I read part of the book, Voices of Chernobyl, um, by Svetlana Alexievich. And Ludvila Ignatenko, she was 23 years old in 1986. She had just married her husband, Vasily, after they met just four years earlier as teenagers. Vasily worked as a firefighter. This is a true story. He worked as a firefighter um, and lived in a little community, Pripyat, close to Chernobyl, where the explosion happened at the nuclear reactor. After the explosion that morning, uh, firefighters were called in to put out the fire, among, among other things, clean up the rubble. And doing this, of course, exposed them to intense, I mean, just absurd levels of, uh, of radiation. So not long after uh, Vasily, Ludmilla's husband, goes to, to fight the fires, to clear the rubble, he's hospitalized with acute radiation poisoning. And over the course of 14 days, redacting some of the details for more sensitive ears, perhaps younger ears, over the course of 14 days, Ludmilla experienced and sat by the side of her husband, Vasily, as he died in the hospital. But her story that she tells uh, just a few years as she's being interviewed after all of this tells of a kind of, of a kind of holy rage so that she could be close to her husband, Vasily, as he died. Part of the, the, the care for her as, as someone who was affected but not in the immediate zone of the explosion was to keep loved ones um, away from those who were suffering in hospital beds whose fate was sure. They were way too close to the radiation to survive. And a few of the things that the doctors and nurses did were to keep her in another room. They'd ask her questions about her health history in hopes that she would stay away from her husband there lying in a bed. Eventually, they even put up this, this thick plastic sheet, which is a little bit transparent, but not enough, not enough to really see through, to keep her and told her, Ludmilla, you must stay behind the sheet to see your husband. If you want to be in here, you've got to stay behind the sheet and only for a few minutes at a time. As the story goes, Ludmilla would ignore their directions and when the nurses left the room, she would push back the plastic and come sit by her husband's side, holding his hand and getting even much closer than that to tend to his wounds, to touch his body. His body that had been impossibly compromised with toxic radiation. The show even embellishes it a little bit. As, as Vasily lays there dying, and Lumilla is holding his hand, she opens the windows for him 
sensing this is, this is close to the end. And puts on, putting on sunglasses on her husband, whose eyes have become so sensitive to the light, he can't really see anything. She describes what's there outside, beyond, in the world, outside his window. Describes the sound of hearing children play, of a swing set, of cars moving up and down the street, of people carrying on their very normal, ordinary, profane lives. Friends, why did Ludmilla get so close, get dangerously, almost fatally close to her husband in those 14 days that he lay dying? Why did she want to be near him so badly? I mean, he was, he was dying quickly. His symptoms made it abundantly clear that he would not survive, not to mention the accident. Do you think that Ludmilla thought that being near him would save his life? What does it even matter that she sit with him if she can't make him even one bit better? The answer is this. The incarnation. Because God has come in flesh and blood, each of her physical acts of love was a holy gift to a man desperately in need of it. Friends, each moment of your life, whether spent receiving an award for achievement or watching your beloved team lose their bowl game, which was after a season that wasn't that good anyway, okay, however you spend each and every moment of your life, each moment is holy. Because of Christ's incarnation, each moment is deeply holy because Jesus took on flesh and blood for that. For life lived right where you are in flesh. More than that, Jesus had to die for that. But more than that, he chooses to love that. To love that existence of life and flesh that you and I share. To love you back to life through his incarnation. John ends his letter by saying, you know, much more to write to you, friends, but I'd rather see you face to face so that our joy may be complete. Where was Jesus' face set at the end of his life? The Gospels tell us over and over again, as Jesus nears the end of his life, his face is set to Jerusalem. As he ministers and heals and praises his Father in heaven, and also as he is cursed, as he eats, as he sleeps, as people try to kill him and run him out of town, his face is set to Jerusalem. Why? What's in Jerusalem? A cross. A cross that wasn't coming for him, for him, so he would go to it. He would allow himself to be nailed to it and endure its shameful death. Why? So that he wouldn't just see your face for a moment. So that your years here are not all that exists, and they are not all that is holy. Not just the span of 60, if you're lucky, 90 years. No, he endured the cross so that he could look into your face forever. So that that would be his story and our story shared, would be face-to-face joy. I don't know where you are this morning, friends. Maybe near, maybe feeling quite far from his face. But know this, the king of all, very God of very God, put on flesh and blood so that he could set his face to your shame and defeat and take it for you and give you his joy. Hallelujah. What a savior. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, the story of your son, a story that is not merely a story, but one that reflects the reality of 
the Son of God who took on flesh. Father, we pray that that you would meet us in the normal day-to-day of our lives, that this wouldn't be merely aspirational, wouldn't be something that we hope that is true only, but something that is very much true and that changes each and every facet of our lives, each part, to see how much our lives matter to you, how much we matter to you, because you have loved us with the deep and everlasting love of Christ come in the flesh for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.